The text for the sermon this day is taken from the, both gospel lessons as well as the epistle. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As a quick note, if you're wondering why you heard the bells tolling 33 times, I'm not totally certain where the, the tradition originated, but there is an old tradition that many churches, whenever a person would die, they would toll the bell for every time they lived. So, for example, when I was up in Ocheedon, uh, Zion, I know, used to have the tradition that whenever somebody would die, the pastor or the elder or whatever would go over the church and pull down that heavy bell. If they lived 97 years, they would ring it 97 times. So... You, when you heard the bells ringing earlier, it was 33 times for the estimated number of years that Jesus was alive before he was crucified. So that's where that came from. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, there is a promise that is given. A promise by Yahweh to Adam and Eve who have fallen into sin. That their offspring would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. That is what is known as the, the Proto-Oyengelion, or the first gospel. Because it's the first promise that a Christ would come. They had made, who knows what went into their minds, into their imaginations, as to what the Christ would look like. I'm sure they had a whole set of ideas. But as the years would pass, it seemed like it was never coming. It would go longer and longer and longer. Then in 65 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was sacked. It was conquered by the Romans. And so they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. And they still were holding out for the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a Christ, the one who would free them from the Roman government. Sixty years later, in a town of Nazareth, Nazareth, a little itty-bitty town that is in the middle of nowhere that nobody goes to unless they're really meaning to go to Nazareth. 
The best comparison I can think of for us is it'd be kind of like rickets. Now, this isn't a slight against rickets. It's just, it's just, if you think about where rickets is located, it's right on a county highway. It's not on, a, it's not on you know, 141 or high, Highway 59. It's, it's just kind of in the middle there. Nazareth was a very similar. The only difference is, is that Ricketts is almost a metropolis compared to Nazareth. So Nazareth was actually about 40 or 50 people in population. And so, little insignificant town, culturally speaking. And so nobody would ever think of anything too special going on there. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when one of his disciples meet meet Jesus, they say, could anything good come from Nazareth? That's the reason they asked it, because there's not a lot, doesn't seem like there's much there for something big to come out of. Well, in that town of Nazareth, a young girl, 13 to, four, 13 to 15 years old, so think of your average 7th or 8th grader, was visited by an angel named Gabriel. And he was given the news that she would be pregnant with a, ba- with a child, a child from the Holy Spirit, and that this child would be none other than the Christ, that he was the son of David. Mary, a woman who was not even married yet. She was engaged to an honorable man named Joseph, but she wasn't married. She wasn't in Jerusalem. She wasn't a child of, no- of noble birth. She was just a random girl. She was just this average girl in her 13 to 15 years old living in the small town of Nazareth. And which really probably throws off because they know the prophecy is that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And they're not there yet. Well, God works through means to make that happen. See, they would be sent to Bethlehem. Because of the census ordered by Caesar Augustus. And so they made their way to Bethlehem. I don't know how they got there. Probably by caravan. It probably took, you know, 70, 80, you know, 70, 80 miles to get there. So it took about three or four days. And that meant going through mountain and hills, walking across rivers. It was not fun. And probably very much what was likely involved in their journey was a donkey. A foreshadowing, a pointing forward to the text for today. The rumors had been, and by the way, what I just talked about is also a text for today, but I'm coming back to that. But... The rumors had begun to spread as Jesus grew older, because he was born there in Bethlehem, back at Christmas, you heard, heard that story. So he was born, he grew up, and he gained quite a reputation. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He made the blind to see, the lame to walk, to the deaf to hear. He cleansed the leper, he even raised the dead. And so the people of Israel now, so this is about 33 AD, so we're talking almost 100 years after 
the conquer after the Romans have took, taken over. They are longing that this is the end of this period, that Jerusalem may now have its kingdom. And so they're hearing that the Christ, Jesus, or the guy that they think might be the Christ, Jesus is coming to town. They're expecting, they're thinking, yes, this guy could raise the dead. I mean, what, king, what army could stand a chance against him? I mean, you could kill him and he's going to raise him, kill, him, kill a soldier. This guy's going to raise him from the dead. We don't have to worry about rations because all we need is five loaves of bread and two fish and he'll feed an entire army. And so he ride, they see, they get the palm branches down because in that region of the world, palm branches were the traditional way of greeting a king. And by, so the children were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. And by the way, the adults were also singing, which is why we have a full congregational processional today. So kind of go, putting your feet, putting yourselves into the place. That's why we read that John reading just before we processed in, so you know where that came from. And this goes back, that tradition goes back at least to the time of Luther, because Luther wrote about the big processional where the entire congregation would come in, except for they started outside. So, but it was a little cold, I decided to stay inside. But anyways, so they have that image, he's coming, and then he comes in and he rides in, not on a horse, not on a stallion, not on an on a animal that declares we're coming in to conquer Rome. No, he comes in on a donkey. An animal that by riding in on it, he is declaring that he is doing anything but declaring war. In fact, he is, they know that this is a prophecy. You heard it in the reading from Zechariah, that this is a prophecy regarding the Christ, that, he, that the king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. But that was not a symbol of war or of conquest. It was a symbol of peace. They don't want peace with Rome. They want to conquer Rome. So they begin, so you can imagine the crowd was a little bit confused. They cheered because maybe thinking... Maybe they were thinking that he had something up his sleeves. And he went, so he went into the temple and he threw out the money changers, making it very clear that he was not the Christ that they were hoping for, that he was not the king that they wanted. Late on that donkey, on, the, on its back, well, possibly. Many breeds of donkeys, I don't know if you know this, but many breeds on their back actually have a cross in their fur. And so, and you can look up, you can Google it, you can see countless pictures of them. But, and I don't know the breed, I'm not, I'm not that kind of uh, expert. But anyways, they'd have the cross on the back pointing forward to the real reason why Jesus, one of the, the two reasons why Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He is riding in to present himself as the king of the Jews, but he is also riding in to present himself as a sacrifice. 
That very week was Passover, when people would be bringing in their animals for the sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb who goes uncomplaining forth, as we just sang in that hymn, presenting himself as the unblemished Lamb for sacrifice. And the cross that would, may have been on the back of that lamb or that donkey was pointing forward to exactly how he would be sacrificed. For later that week, he would ride, he would be in Jerusalem again. He would be standing before Pilate, not to conquer him, but rather for Pilate to speak judgment over him. Pilate would beg and plead that Jesus should go free. He hasn't committed any crime deserving of death. Pilate did anything and everything he could think of to get Jesus off the hook. But nonetheless, the crowd would shout, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd had to turn to Pilate because under Roman law at the time, the only person who could order an execution was Pilate. It was a law that was actually passed only a few months before the crucifixion. That's why it says, why in John's Gospel, you'll hear it this Good Friday, they say according to the law, we can't, we can't put him to death. They're referring to Roman law, not the law of the Scriptures. And so... After he, so Pilate tried everything. He even offered up Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, and said, you could let him go or you could let Jesus go. And they said, no, we're going to let the murderer go. And so he was led down the very streets that he was, he was cheered in, and he went down that same street carrying a cross. Just as that donkey had a cross on its back, Jesus bore a cross on his back. And he carried it down the streets as far as he could. And another carried it for him the rest of the way. And he was nailed to that very cross. And there he suffered and he died. And it's in that moment, I've talked about this over recent months, that in the Gospel of Mark, there is only one human being that recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons recognize that he is the Son of God. Obviously, God the Father recognizes it. The angels recognize it. But no human being recognizes it except for one. See, even when Peter says, you are the Christ, in the Gospel of Mark, it stops short of saying the Son of the living God. And the reason is, is because Mark is communicating that Peter had no idea what he was saying. Even though Peter probably said that you were, Peter did say you are the Son of the living God, Mark, by cutting that statement out, which is included in Matthew's Gospel, is letting you know that Peter has no idea what he's saying. He's saying it not knowing it. 
which is communicated by just in the next paragraph when Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. Showing that Peter doesn't get it, even though he said it. Because anybody else ever say things and not realize what they're saying? Not think about what they're saying? Peter did that more than once. The only human being that recognizes he is the Son of God is in today's text. See, it's not when Je- people had seen Jesus, as I said, fed the 5,000, healed the blind, made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, did all these incredible wonders, and yet none of them said, this is the Son of God. They didn't say that when they saw him in the Mount of Transfiguration. Rather, it is in the moment when his, his disciples, his closest friends, abandoned him. It's in the moment when his religious leaders and his community demanded crucify him. It's in the moment when his government ordered the execution. It's in that moment when he has nothing, when he is stripped bare. It is in that moment when he completely empties himself. That reading from Philippians, that's the old translation. Instead of he made himself nothing, I like better, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of all of his divine power to the very point that he emptied himself of his last breath. And it's only after he breathed his last that you hear from that centurion soldier overseeing that very crucifixion that he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. See, our Lord... Our God is not like other gods. He does not show himself in power. He shows himself in humility. In fact, in that reading in Philippians, it says he humbled himself, but the better way to... Whenever you read the word humbled in the Greek or anywhere in the Bible, replace that word with humiliated. Because it's a better understanding of the word. Because we hear humbled, we think, oh, he just thought little of himself. No, humiliated is a better way of understanding it. He humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is in his humiliation. He who, he chose to be born of that virgin. Which, by the way, you know why I use that text? Anybody know what is exactly nine months from today? Christmas. Today is the feast. Normally, today is the feast of the Annunciation. And I say normally because it's Palm Sunday, Annunciation gets moved to tomorrow. But normally, it is today. And the reason it is today is because the early church believed that a great prophet was crucified or died on the same day they were conceived. 
So it was believed in the early church that Jesus was crucified on March 25th. And therefore, he was conceived on March 25th. And therefore, Christmas became December 25th. Unless you're in the East where they have a different calendar and they're on April 6th for the conception and January 6th for Christmas. That's where it came from. There is a connection. See, even when you celebrate Christmas, it's all about the cross. It's all pointing you there. But you see this coming Thursday... For the Maundy Thursday services, at the very end of it, you're going to see this altar stripped. This cloth is going to be taken off, the pyramids, the altar book, the candles, everything from here. It is just going to be bare wood. It's it's almost like when you, I don't know if you've ever moved out of a house or someplace where you lived for a long time. I went through college, I moved out of my dorm room, you know, eight times, including seminary. So I got used to that experience, that room that was a disaster at some points, completely empty. Nothing but the left-behind furniture. It's going to look like that almost. But as a reminder of how our Lord was stripped, he became nothing. He emptied himself. That he got to the point that he was even abandoned by God himself. And by the way, this is why we read the Passion twice during Holy Week. Because if you only read John's Gospel, you never get, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You never get the darkness. You never get the thief in the cross, which you'll hear next year from Luke's Gospel. Or you may hear from next, that you hear in Luke's Gospel. That's why you hear it twice. You get the full picture of the crucifixion. But he said it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why have you abandoned me? God the Father turned his back on him. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. See, he was stripped, he was emptied, and he was covered. In, he became sin itself. And so when you see that, it is a reminder that you too will one day die. You too will be stripped of everything. You don't get to take your family or your friends with you when you die. You are all by yourself. Except for one difference. Jesus was abandoned by God the Father in his death. In order that When you face death, he won't abandon you. That his angels will come and he will carry you to eternal life. See, it's in the cross that we see all of our hope. We see all of life. Irony, I know. It's in the death of our Lord that we see our life. Because he rose. Therefore, as it says, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He became nothing. He utterly humiliated himself that he may be exalted. And in his exaltation, he exalts you. He who became, he who knew no sin, became sin for you, that you may become the righteousness of God. Till that day comes, till we enjoy an eternal life. To God be all glory. Amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ keeping the one true faith, the life everlasting. Amen. Please stand.